All right, what am I doing here? Security authorization accepted. All right, here we go. You and your crummy comic books, that's all you ever think about. They're comics, you ass! Tell me how comic books make you feel, Dave. Well, it'll make me feel too good. For a couple of times, you better come book it you up. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? This comic book describes a sexual aberration so shocking that I couldn't mention even the scientific terms on television. I think there ought to be a law against them. Tonight, I'm going to show you why. Batman either because it just isn't my favorite version of the costume or at least as an adult it isn't my favorite version of the costume but Alex Ross has a way of drawing even the most god awful concept and making it look kind of cool huh oh I'm, I'm sorry that was rather rude of me here I am not only talking about a piece of artwork that you probably can't see at the moment but I'm doing so on a podcast which is audio only god that's that was kind of stupid Anyways, what I'm babbling on about is the cover to Age of TV Heroes, a book that the fine people from Tomorrow's Publishing will be putting out in November. Tomorrow's is the outfit that publishes magazines like Alter Ego, Back Issue, The Jack Kirby Collector, and a fine series of companion books that makes the amateur comic book historian and me giddy like a schoolgirl. Age of TV Heroes, I'm assuming, is going to be about the television incarnations of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and so on. And Alex Ross did the cover, which is what I've been looking at. And Alex Ross doing a cover to something like this should come as a surprise to no one. And it is this really nice piece of art with George Reeves as Superman, Adam West as Batman, Jackson Bostwick as Captain Marvel, and Linda Carter as Wonder Woman because it just wouldn't be an Alex Ross piece without... Captain Marvel, or Linda Carter. Yeah, I didn't say Wonder Woman. I said Linda Carter. I mean, that's who he's drawing, right? I always thought so. Anyway, hello everybody. Welcome back to Views from the Long Box. I am your host, Michael Bailey, and this is episode 32 for March 12th, 2008. Um, Before I get into the episode proper, I wanted to announce that there is a winner... In my Justice League New Frontier giveaway contest, after pouring through the thousands upon thousands of entries, 
Okay, after writing down the names of the nine people who entered, I pulled the name Allie, with two L's, kind of like Lex Luthor, Lana Lang, Lois Lane, Lightning Lad, and all the double L's that apparently had some kind of bizarre significance to Superman back in the Silver Age. Minnick, Allie, and everyone else really answered correctly that the narrator at the beginning of the trailer was President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and that the writer-artist of the original series was the ever-badass Darwin Cook. So, thanks to everyone who entered, and sorry to those who didn't win. I'm sure I'll have another contest at some point or another. Anyways, I rearranged the bookshelf here in the fortress recently. I had purchased a new one, and between that and a smaller one that was already here, and another one that we were already using, I put all of my wife's books in the other room so that the main bookcase was freed up from my stuff, and all of her books were in one central location that she could get to. And, you know, I, I made a not-so-surprising discovery is that I own a metric crap ton of trade paperbacks. I've posted pictures, or I will post pictures, depending on how lazy I am between posting this episode and, and getting to... Uh, putting stuff on the blog, but uh, I don't want to bore you with the overly long and frankly boring description of the uh, you know, the bookcase, but in a bizarre way, I found the entire rearranging process enjoyable. It was kind of neat to look at and go through the various books and think about when I bought them, etc. Some of them have been with me for well over a decade now, and some I bought just the week before I started rearranging everything. I get the same feeling when I go through my comics. There's a scene in the movie High Fidelity where John Cusack's character reveals to his friend that he is organizing his record collection chronologically as the, you know, as in the first record is the first record he ever bought and the last record is the most recent. I did that once years ago when I was about 14 or so and I only had about 500 books at the time so it was rather easy but still while it is tempting to do so today with my comic books, I have neither the time nor the space required to do it with my collection as it stands. You know, I used to think that there was no such thing as having too many comics, but the fantasy of owning tens of thousands of comics is much more glamorous than the reality of the fact that it takes eight hours to file my books. And all of this has caused me to kind of rethink my position on that. I'll get back to you in as soon as I come to a firm conclusion. One of the sections of my library, and you can't see me using the little air quotes on the word library, uh, because it's not really a library. I mean, I don't put anything in the Dewey Decimal System, or however, whatever new system that they use today, I understand that uh, the Dewey Decimal System is on the outs with, uh, with the libraries. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that. One of the sections of my library is books about comics, and when I was filing them, I came across a book I bought several years ago, but that I had first read back when I was somewhere between 12 and 13 years old, which is why I paid way too much money for the book. I just really wanted it at the time. Uh, when I first read the book, I was in the 7th grade, attending Iyer Junior High School, and located in scenic McCungie, Pennsylvania, and I actually kind of mean that, because McCungie's a pretty town. Actually, that section of Pennsylvania is, is very, very pretty, especially in the fall, when all the leaves are changing, but you probably don't care about that. 
unless you're from that area, in which case let me know, because I'd like to know if people from the hometown are listening. When I had a study hall, I would usually opt to go to the library, because it was usually better than sitting in a room struggling to stay awake. I actually worked at that library, too. They had this program where students would come during their study halls and help the women who worked in the library put up books and such. God, I liked doing that, too. One of the librarians, I think her name was Mrs. Johnson. I remember Mrs. Johnson. I could be completely misremembering it, too. She was a very chatty woman and seemed genuinely happy to have the students around, or she just liked the fact that we did most of her grunt work. But in either case, I I liked the woman. Um, But it was in that library that I found a book that would literally shape me as a collector. The book was called Collecting Comic Books and was written by a woman named Marcia Leder. It was published in 1983 by Little Brown and Company of Boston and Toronto and clocked in at about 162 pages, though to be honest, the last 60 or so was comprised of dealer and publisher's listings, an abbreviated price guide, a glossary, and an index. And the, the, the glossary is kind of interesting to look at today. Actually, the whole book is interesting to look at today, but I'll get to that in a second. The glossary, though, is something else. One of the terms is first appearance, which seems to me to be rather self-explanatory. Another term is origin retold. Then there's market price, origin, and she even breaks down by number the difference between a scarce book and a rare book, which is just odd. It may seem like I'm making fun of this book, but I'm not. Much. The fact is that this book and a guy named Kirk Trock, who chided me backstage during the production of HMS Pinafore uh, that we were in together for the way that I was holding my Action Comics Annual Number 2 and taught me the proper way to hold a comic, a technique I use to this day when I don't put the comic down on a table or something. Uh, This book taught me just about everything I needed to know about collecting comic books. The book is something of a time capsule today, but it gave a good idea of what the collector's market was in 1983. Marsha goes through a brief history of comics, where to find them, how to store them, how to grade, and breaks down collecting in one convenient package. She even goes into the restoration of comics, which I don't know if that's even done today. Does anybody restore their comics? Because I figure that kind of goes against the whole collector mentality. One of the bits of info that has stuck with me to this day regards where to store your books. Ideally, she writes, comic books should be stored in a dark, cool place with a temperature of 40 to 50 degrees or lower. And I I find this kind of fascinating because I prefer a dark, cool environment with a temperature of 40 to 50 degrees. Actually, it's probably why a lot of my comics uh, that I still have from when I was a teenager are in as good condition as they are today because, well, to, to to be honest, I was kind of a lazy student. I got bad grades a lot, and as punishment, my father would put my comics up in the attic and because this was mostly during the winter time, my comics spent most of their time in a cold, dry place. So, in a weird way, I followed her advice, just not in the way she probably wanted me to, or anybody wanted me to. God knows Dad wanted me to get better grades. It's not that I think it was silly of Marsha to write that, because frankly, 
she's still right about a cold, dark place being a good place to store your comics, but still, while a climate-controlled room is the aspiration of every serious comic collector, I just don't think it's realistic. The thing that gets me about reading this book now is that it's pretty much a relic. While there is a fair chunk of information that is still valid as far as the care and feeding of comics, and all you would have to do in most cases is just add some of the developments in comic book storage, like the totally awesome drawer boxes that you can find at www.collectiondrawer.com. Oh, God. Man, these things are so neat. They're, they're a box that is pretty sturdy from what I understand and pulls out like a filing cabinet almost. It, oh, man, I want these. But they're kind of expensive, and I cannot quite afford them at the moment. But when you look at how much the comic buying landscape has changed, not only over the last 25 years since this book was published, but in the last 5 to 10 years, and most of the advice in this book on where to buy comics and the price guide is pretty much useless. I mean, let's look at how someone who wanted to buy comics in 1983 could find them. Well, there's spinner racks at the newsstands and grocery stores, not to mention convenience stores and even the occasional drug store, because I really like saying the word store. Then there were the subscriptions directly from the publishers, mail order services, conventions and shows, and of course, comic shops that have been dotting the landscape since the 70s. Spinner racks have a great nostalgia to be sure, but the quality of the comics found there could be kind of dodgy after a bunch of people have rifled through them. Subscriptions were a direct way to get the books, but you were really at the mercy of the postal service, and sometimes the books would come bent, and they'd come later to you than they did on the newsstands and the comic shop, so I don't know if it was really all that convenient, though you could get some good deals overall. Comic shops were there, but really in 1983, I, th I think they were few and far between. And that's just new issues. Back issues were purchased through mail order at comic shops or at shows and conventions or privately between people, but mostly that was through the mail. Bookstores would occasionally sell collected books and graphic novels, but that was a rarity. Now let's look at where to get comics in 2008. Spinnerax? Pretty much gone. Some grocery chains like Publix here in my neck of the woods carry them, but that's about it. Comic shops? Still around, but man is it tough to own a shop these days. The market is much better than it was at the start of the decade, but it's still not in the greatest of shape. I respect those that stick it through, though, and that want to do it. I really do. I just couldn't justify doing it with my current situation being what it is. But if your town has a comic shop, you can find new comics. So what about back issues? Convention and shows? Eh, there are still one- and two-day shows here and there, and the bigger cons have a fair amount of dealers. Well, except for Dragon Con, but frankly, Dragon Con is not a comic convention. It is a pop culture convention, so that should be expected. Mail order? Well, mail order is still there, and it's called the Internet. The Internet has done many things for comics. It has allowed fans to talk to one another at a speed that used to be unheard of. Back in the day, snail mail and amateur publishing associations were how fans talked to one another. Well, that and letter pages and fanzines. Still, you were at the mercy of the previously mentioned post office. I mean, snail mail is a cute little buzz term and all, but it's pretty accurate. As many 
people far more intelligent and wiser than myself have said, the internet provides an immediacy that has changed how people communicate with each other about just about anything, not just comics, but since this is a show about comics, we will talk about comics. It has also changed how the publishers react to their audience. It has changed how the books are marketed. It has also given a voice to every jackass with a hold box and an opinion, but I think that is a subject for another show, which is the polite way of saying I need to find a manner in which to discuss comic fans that is much more politic than what will just spew out of my mouth if I let it. For now, I'll stick to something that's positive, and that is how the internet has made it so much easier to find what you're looking for. First, there are a number of mail-order sites that will ship you your comics on a regular basis. Add to that the online retailers that sell back issues and trades, and you're pretty much set. If it's out there, and you're pretty good with Google, you can find it. In my day, if your local... Well, let me say that different. In my day, if your local comic shop didn't have, say, the issue of adventure comics you needed to complete your Justice Society run, then unless you went through a service like Mile High Comics, which may be sold out, then you were pretty much out of luck. That was really stupid. I'm going to do that over again. In my day, if your local comic shop didn't have, say, the issue of Adventure Comics you needed to complete your Justice Society run, then unless you went through a service like Mile High Comics, which may be sold out, then you were pretty much out of luck. You would never see how the Earth 2 Batman died. Now? Well, if a shop has it, so can you. It may cost you some bank, but it could be yours, and all you had to do was start the computer, fire up your web browser, and spend some time researching. I'll admit that this takes some of the fun out of collecting, as in it doesn't have the same thrill of the hunt that going through boxes and boxes of comics does to me. But frankly, if I want an issue bad enough, then all of that can go straight to hell so long as I get my book. Then there's eBay. eBay has done two things for the comic book marketplace. First, no matter how esoteric it is, no matter how small of a print run it had, no matter how long you have waited to find it, if you are patient and persistent enough, then eventually it will be yours. Again, you might have to look into how much your kidney will go on the black market to pay for it, but it can be found. It's so simple, and yet it still amazes me. I was late coming into eBay. I started buying things in around 2002, and there were times when I spent a little too much money. Okay, there were a lot of times when I spent way too much money, but I was younger then, less sure of the world, more concerned with material goods. Okay, that was four to six years ago, but still. Everything I have been looking for, all of my holy grails, so to speak, are now mine. eBay is where I found my copies of Superman from the 30s to the 70s, Superman from the 30s to the 80s, Batman from the 30s to the 70s. I repurchased both Superman Lives and Batman Nightfall, the BBC audio dramas there. I found, after months of searching, another copy of the second edition of Comic Book Heroes by Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs. I had originally purchased it in 1998, but it was stolen one day when I was working at Delta Airlines. I wanted it back so badly, and there it was, and a few weeks later, I found the first edition. And yes, I did get my copy of Adventure Comics number 462, The Death of the Earth 2 Batman on eBay. 
So as far as getting crap you want, eBay is the awesome. eBay also pretty much rewrote the book on how much a comic is worth. For decades, a comic's worth was decided primarily by two forces. The first being the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, which began life in 1970. I'm sure there were some proto-versions of price guides uh, before Robert Overstreet said, Hey, I should do a price guide. And I seem to remember reading that the prices in the Overstreet Guide were inflated, but since I don't have all of that research in front of me at the moment, we'll stick to the generalizations, and I hope you let me slide on that. The Overstreet Guide was considered the Bible by some for how much a comic is worth. I also believe that it might have indirectly led to the speculator boom of the late 80s and early 90s, and even Collecting Comic Books by Marsha Leader discusses comic collecting for later profit. There is not direct causation here, but frankly the statement, those comics could be worth some money, has a lot more weight if it's changed to, hey look, this book says those comics could be worth some money. And then along came Wizard. And I will flat out say that Wizard had a lot to do with the speculator boom, as it was a product of said boom. Here was a monthly magazine that told you how much your books were worth. I remember, vividly remember, guys I knew who collected comics at the time checking that thing monthly to see how much their X-Force run was worth. It's almost laughable to look at today, but at one point, New Mutants number 87, the first appearance of Cable was listed as being worth $65. When I think about that now, the room spins and the words abort, retry, fail flash before my eyes again and again and again. But Wizard caught on and gained some measure of legitimacy, and thus, new fanboys got an inflated sense of what their collections were worth. Most of those collections, by the way, are now languishing in 50-cent box, waiting for poor saps like me to come and snap them up. I actually bought an issue of Wizard last week, and I have to say that what that magazine has morphed into is damn near offensive. Well, not offensive in terms of objectionable content. Well, you know, objectionable is kind of a subjective term. Okay, the magazine fucking sucks. God, it's like People Magazine for comic books. I don't give a rat's ass what comic creators were at what movie premiere or what Hayden Penetier or however you pronounce her last name is doing. And the articles are these puff pieces that make the old wizard look like hard-hitting journalism. Man, why do I buy it knowing that it's going to suck? You know, that is insanity at its most pure, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Sorry for the F-bombs there, I just get kind of passionate about things that I utterly despise. Anyway, along comes eBay. And suddenly, a comic isn't worth what a price guide says it is, but what someone is willing to pay for it. Amazing. Simply amazing. This is the free market at its finest. Sure, the golden and silver and bronze age books are going to cost you, but frankly, if you are lucky enough to catch something at just the right time, you could make off like a bandit. So not only can you find what you're looking for, but depending on when the auction was listed, and depending on who is looking for it at the time, and depending on how low the seller is willing to go, you can get what you want and not have to pay too much for it. And that is why eBay threw such a monkey wrench into the secondary comic book market. It's not taking what a select number of shops across the country charge for Giant Size X-Men number one and coming up with some sort of average. It's what whoever was willing to pay at the moment is willing to pay.
Sure, there are people who don't like eBay and won't buy things there. So there are those that will pay whatever the store is charging or whatever they can haggle the price down to. But really and truly, eBay has made buying back issues online almost as much fun, if that's the word to use, as hunting through the comic shops and scouring through a dealer's stock at conventions. At least fun to me, because, you know, like they say, not only do you buy, you win! Actually, the back issue market is even more depressing today than it was in the late 90s. Blake P.T. of 201 Showcase wrote about this in one of his Everything But Imaginary columns. It's almost like I want to write a parody song of Video Killed the Radio Star called Trade Paperback Killed the Back Issue Star. With publishers putting so much into the collected format these days, the back issues become less and less important. Five years ago, if you missed an issue, finding it might be hard, but you would still go through the hassle because you needed it. With the ease and temptation of the trade, finding that issue might not be a priority anymore. In fact, why buy single issues at all when the trade will eventually come out, sometimes nanoseconds after the story ends? That's an exaggeration, and I am not saying that trades will kill the monthly. But it just isn't the same anymore. And that makes me sound really, really old. (laughs) There isn't this imperative to have to get the next issue. The publishers have made it too easy, and as more and more of the older stuff gets into print, then you may start to see those back-issue prices fall or become irrelevant altogether. It's an interesting time to be a comic collector, much in the same way it must have been an interesting time to be alive when Rome fell. I'm not saying that comics are going to disappear, but the way in which the form is conveyed is going through a revolution, and the day may come when I have to decide if I really want to read my comics online, or just stop and be happy with the collection I have. The next five or seven years are really going to be interesting. Very interesting indeed. Alright, last week, I announced a new segment here at Views from the Longbox called Ask Mike a Question About Comics. The concept is simple. You have a question regarding a character, team, publisher, creator, whatever, and I will endeavor to answer it. Well, I got one entry from NeedCoffee.com and Weekend Justice's Scott C. Scott had these two questions. Why did they specifically pick Kansas as Superman's home state? And, can Superman and Lois have children? Are their species incompatible? I'll take the second question first, because I can actually kind of answer this off the top of my head. There were scads of imaginary stories in the Silver Age that had Lois and Superman popping out litters and litters of kids. And you also had the Super Sons, where the sons of Batman and Superman fight crime on, of all things, Earth-E, which was actually recently released in a trade paperback. My wife got me that for our anniversary. I was really happy about that. Then you had the Superman of 2020, who makes it sound like, you know, the John Stossel Superman or something, but who was Superman's grandson. The thing is, they never really went into how such a biological union could occur. Writer Larry Niven speculated on it in his essay, Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex, which is funny as hell, and pretty much came to the conclusion that they are different species and thus incapable of conceiving a child together. Now, more recently, as recent as 1991 at least, Adventures of Superman Annual Number 3, which was part of the whole Armageddon 2001 debacle, or 
debacle, as my friend Andy is so fond of correcting me on, had the two conceiving a child with Lois dying after the baby gives her a good solid kick. And in John Byrne's Generations continuity, Lois and Clark popped out two kids, but again, it was never really explained how this happened. Neither did Superman Returns, for that matter. Now, I seem to remember a relatively recent issue of the Superman books, where Superman pretty much figures that it just won't work between him and Lois in that manner. And when Superman lost his powers at the end of Infinite Crisis, there was an equally infinite number of speculation that this would be the moment where the two could conceive, but that was not to be. On a more practical, real-world front, I don't think DC will have them have a child, naturally, anytime soon. I mean, it took them 58 years to get married for real, and I'm sorry, as much as I like Earth 2, it was a complete cop-out having that Lois and Clark get married, but that's entirely beside the point. So I don't think having kids is in the cards. Barring a new administration coming in and dying to do the story, I think there are enough people working at DC right now who don't even like the marriage, much less the idea of a kid. So, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. As for your second question, um, I really don't know why they chose Kansas out of all of the other states in the Union to place Smallville. I was able to do some research, though, on the history of Smallville's location in the United States, and I have to give a special thanks to Steve Eunice and Barry Fryman of the Superman homepage for helping me out on this one. Barry sent me this info from Wikipedia. The History of Smallville's Location The actual location of Smallville, like those of other fictional DC Universe cities, originally was never specifically stated in the comics. Smallville's location varied widely throughout many stories, many of which place Smallville close to Metropolis in Midvale, home of Supergirl. All new Collector's Edition number C-55, notable for featuring the wedding of Legion of Superheroes members Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl, and published in 1978, calls Smallville a quiet town nestled in the hills just inland from the eastern seaboard. In Amazing World of DC Comics number 14, 1977, a magazine with articles on DC Comics characters and series, Smallville was stated to be in Maryland. The Maryland location was supported in the actual comics, with a map of Smallville and the surrounding area that was published in New Adventures of Superboy number 22, October 1981, which stay, situated Smallville a few miles west of a large bay, very similar to Delaware Bay. The same map placed Metropolis and Gotham City on the east and west sides of that bay. A map of Legion-era Metropolis, included in Legion of Superheroes, Volume 2, Number 313, July 1984, indicates that Smallville was believed by the 2980s to be somewhere in northeastern Pennsylvania or northern New Jersey. That's actually kind of cool. I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. While incorporated into Metropolis proper at that time as a historical district. In revisions of the map published after 1986, this was retroactively removed to accommodate changes of Smallville's location and other titles as detailed below. Smallville was first placed in Kansas by the 1978 film Superman the Movie, although actual filming of the Kent's family farmland was done in Alberta and the surrounding fields of the town of Baldock, England. 
Superman writer Elliot S. Megan incorporated the Kansas location into the DC Universe in his 1981 Superman novel, Miracle Monday. Comic writer and artist John Byrne also plays Smallville in Kansas, and in his 1986 rewrite of Superman's origin, The Man of Steel. The 1997 limited series The Kents places Smallville in eastern Kansas within about a day's horse ride of Paola, Kansas, which is located in Miami County. And after that, anything to do with Smallville has been pretty much in Kansas. Uh, Smallville, Lois and Clark, etc. So, I don't know if that quite answers your question, Scott, but uh, I hope it was somewhat helpful. And that wraps up another episode of Views from the Long Box, I think... As always, I hope you liked what you heard. My next episode will be out on March 19th, 2008. Until then, you can always check out the blog for the show at viewsfromthelongbox.blogspot.com. There you can find just about all you would like to know about the show and what other things I do on the net. You can find the RSS feed, the iTunes feed, blah, 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 blah. Also, if you have any questions, comments, and the like, feel free to email them to me at viewsfromthelongbox at gmail.com. Views from the Long Box is presented by Fortress of Bailey Dude Productions in association with MediaGauntlet.com. Thanks again, everybody. See you next week. Yeah.